because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media on Twitter at Bball Immersion or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Lynn Dunn to share the game with us. Coach Dunn has had an incredible coaching career and is currently a special assistant to the head coach with Kentucky. She has more than 500 wins to her name and has served as a head coach for four different college teams and three different professional teams, including being the first GM and head coach of the Seattle Storm and the 2012 WNBA championship with the Indiana Fever. Most importantly, Coach Dunn cherishes his role as a mentor for coaches, and she's here to be able to share the game with us. Coach Dunn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, wonderful. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, so many people through my years in coaching have talked so highly of you and uh, all the sharing and all the impact that you've had on the game. And it's just tremendous to be able to talk to someone that loves to give back as much as I do. Well, I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to be in a role where I can help grow our coaches, our young coaches, help our head coaches get better, just be a servant leader. Well, I know you value that tremendously. So maybe just to start with, give us a perspective on some of the ways that you're mentoring and working with coaches. Well, after 26 or 27 years in the college, then I did 18 years in the pros and then I retired from actual, you know, on the bench coaching and started a consulting company where I coach coaches. And I think for many years uh, in men's basketball and men's and football, they had had consultants. Uh, but in women's basketball, that was kind of a new area. And so what I do is I work with the coaches, head and assistant, in helping them get better. You know, how can I help you grow your offensive system, your defensive system? What about your culture? You know, what about your practices? You know, I watch all of the areas, um, and then I work with the coach, and then the coach hopefully will work with the other coaches and the players, and it will all filter down. So my goal is to um, help coaches get better, uh, help them save their jobs, help them get a contract extension, do whatever I can uh, using my 50-plus years of experiences, good, bad, and ugly, um, you know, to to, uh, to help them get better. That's yeah, great stuff. and. Uh... So many people have benefited. And uh, Coach, we're going to get into so many of those different ideas that you share. And uh, I wanted to start with uh, one which you talk about, which is ways to help your team reach their potential. And you have three things that you outlined that I think are pretty special. Well, I I, I think there are a lot of of key factors uh, for reaching your potential. But these three, I think, are really, really important. And I like to emphasize them uh, with the coaches that I work with. And that's to, to... communicate clearly expectations. There's not any doubt about what's expected. Uh, It's clear, it's concise. Uh, The strategy has been set uh, to achieve the goals that we've determined, whatever those goals might be for that year. We have set a clear plan, a clear expectation of how to how do we achieve those? And we're constantly communicating. And I, I'm a great believer, and you, I think you are too. You can't ever over communicate. 
you know, you can't ever say thank you too much and you can't ever rebound too much. And so I, I think the same same way with uh, communicating clearly what the expectations are. Here's what we're going to do and then how we're going to do it. I think a lot of coaches have a vision of what they would like to accomplish, but they don't have a plan to accomplish it. So if I say, okay, we're gonna, our goal is to win 20 games. Well, how are we going to win 20 games? Well, we've got to increase our field goal shooting percentage. We've got to in, uh, in, increase our uh, uh, defensive uh, uh, percentage, improve that. We've got to defend better. We've got to rebound better. So we have a clear plan. Okay, so how do we increase our field goal percentage? Well, here's some of the drills that we do. Here's some of the shooting drills we do. So it's all got to come together with those expectations and that plan. While you're communicating these things, don't be afraid to have difficult uh, conversations. You know what I'm saying? If some of your your, uh, people aren't on board, um, you know, make sure you address any areas that you feel like are out of line. So that's that's that area of communication. Okay, go ahead. No, that was what I wanted to get to is the difficult conversation part, because I think for most coaches, that is the most challenging part. So what are some suggestions you give to coaches for having those conversations in the best way possible? Well, first of all, problems don't go away on their own. You know what I'm saying? The last thing you want to have is have a hangnail turn into a broken arm. You know what I'm saying? You, you, when you suspect or have any idea that there is an issue that's growing that needs to be addressed, address it. You know, address it in a positive way, but don't hide it. Don't cover it up. Don't run from it. <laughs> Just simply address it in a positive way and you know bring it out on the table you don't want it to be the elephant in the room that started out as a baby elephant and then it turned into a herd of elephants you know so so address difficult situations whatever they may be and 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 I think along that line is can you prevent problems um when I'm looking to hire a staff I'm, I'm looking to hire assistants not that can fix problems but that can can prevent problems and issues from ever occurring. And so that that's a real nice trait that they anticipate and they clearly see there's a potential problem here. But please don't not discuss them. You know, um, and, and you may find out that once you've talked through it, listen to the problem. Listen, ask this, hey, say, what is this situation? Share with me your thoughts and listen don't don't be thinking about a solution. Listen and be open minded to, you know, there's what three or four possible solutions to every problem, maybe five. So uh, but yes, you must. Uh, that's all part of communication to help your team reach their potential. And I think sometimes when we ignore a player that has a problem, we ignore a coach that has an issue, a support staff, it could be something in the training room. Um then the next thing you know, it bites us in the ass. And then we think, gosh, why didn't I deal with that? You know, so communicate expectations clearly, have the difficult, uh, uh, the conversations. That's a real key to being able to reach your potential. And then I think the second thing that's a real key is provide immediate feedback. People want to know, coaches, players, everybody, the corporate world, how am I doing? You know, how did I, how did I uh, uh, do that task? Uh, how did I, uh, follow through, you know, give me positive and give me a critical critique. Give me both. I need both. I need, I need you to tell me what I did. Well, I need you to, and don't wait 
four weeks. Oh, I forgot to tell you what a great job you did on that project. Well, I've assumed that I didn't do because I never heard from you. So immediate feedback is really, really important. And be consistent with that. Consistently give feedback. Uh, one of my roles is to watch daily. Pra- I watch practice, every practice with one of the teams that I work with. And I write up immediate feedback. Here's what I saw good. Here's what I saw okay. Here's where are some areas that need to improve. I don't wait to the end of the week to give that feedback. So give immediate feedback, positive and critical. Uh, we, we need that. We need encouragement. We need feedback. We need praise. But we also need criticism. How do you get better if you don't address an area that's weak? Uh, and then show you care, you know. I think when you give immediate feedback to some, hey, great job, way to go, thank you so much. Uh, that's an indication that you care about that person. It's a way to reward people. We always know that immediate feedback, we like rewards, we like praise, we like a pat on the back, we like more money, <laughs> you know, we like titles. Uh, but think of ways that you can provide immediate feedback on a consistent basis. Everybody wants it. They need it. They deserve it. They want it. Just do it. Just make it part of who you are. And I think that helps with your culture, too. That's a real key piece of building a strong, consistent culture that you are providing feedback, you know, that you do take the time, that you do care enough to to give that feedback. So any questions about uh, about immediate feedback, that area? Well, co- coach, I just want to highlight one thing, even from before, which is h- hiring staff that prevents problems, just gold like that. That is that is absolutely it. Uh, don't come to me with the problem, solve them or prevent them. Those are way better than getting to the head coach. Right. Uh, and the, yeah. And the second thing I want to jump on is this concept of immediate feedback, because I know you're big on how you teach, how you teach, how you teach. And so I want to get your perspective on that in practice, because I know what people are maybe assuming is what you're talking about is immediate feedback off the court. How are you handling it within practice? Are you still the believer in immediate feedback within practice as well? Absolutely. And I believe in immediate feedback during practice and after practice. Um, uh, I think when you, now I don't want you to stop the drill, you know, 24 seven, but if you allow your players to do repetitions incorrectly, then they're not going to improve. So it's your responsibility to know how to critique and correct without disrupting the whole practice. And and, and you made a great point about the value of your assistant coaches. There is nothing more important as a head coach who you hire and who you allow into your inner circle. Um, These people are going to make you or break you. You need the very best that you can get. And so bottom line, practice is where everything develops that makes you successful or not. So you better hire some great teachers uh, if you can. And if you can't, then at least hire somebody that's a sponge that wants to learn how to be a great teacher. You know, if you've got five minutes to teach a drill, you can't use four explaining it. You know, you've got one minute to explain it and four minutes to drill it. So, so I think that whole point of, of uh, uh, the staff, the coaches, who you elect, who you hire is so important. Do not underestimate that. And if you find out you've hired the wrong person, you've got to get rid of them. That's that's my speech on pulling the weeds. I think you saw that. You know, you can't allow that to happen. So same, same in the college 
with making a mistake or the pros with a draft pick or signing a player, you get a bad seed. That bad seed's got to go. So back to the immediate feedback, um, I, I think it's really important if you don't stop the drill that when the drill's over, one of your assistants pulls the player over and says, hey, you're traveling. You know, it, when you jump stop, you're shuffling your feet. If I don't correct that, then they're going to jump stop, shuffle their feet in the game. It's going to be called a travel. It's going to be a turnover. And so that's my fault as a coach. That player wants to wants to do what's what's right and what's best. But you've got to teach them. Don't assume anything. So that that that's very important. Correcting, um, and and, and what you do in practice. Practice is just so important. I mean, there's some important things, but I don't know of anything. The way you practice is the way you play. Uh, there's no question, and there's nothing you do more as a coach or as a player than practice together. So it's such an important part. Now I'm going to circle back to that just before we do, and I want to ask you some more questions about staff as well. I want you just to complete the three things because it builds into what you talked about, which is holding people accountable. Absolutely. Communicate expectations clearly, provide immediate feedback, timely, positive and negative, or I don't like to use the word positive and critical or critique or whatever. And then the third thing, really key for your team um, and all your teams, you know, you've got, there's several teams. There's the coaches team, there's the support staff team, there's the players team, and then there's all of you together is you must hold everyone accountable. You must um, first, though, hold yourself accountable. And so that's where you really build trust with everyone in your program. You talk the talk and you walk the walk. The quickest way to lose trust is say, here's what we're going to do, and then we don't do it. So they don't believe you. And, And so it's so important for you to hold yourself accountable, you empower the players to hold each other accountable. The best teams I've ever coached, I knew my leaders, and I'll use Tamika Catchings as an example, was holding the players in the locker room accountable. I didn't have to worry about what was going on in the locker room because I knew she knew the value of not, no, we're not doing that. Hey, you're not working hard, you know, whatever it might be. So um, you have to train them and teach them the values of accountability and do not underestimate how important it is to building trust, to building respect, to being a core piece of your culture. You know, if you say, okay, we've got a great culture, we don't have a great culture, but you don't hold people accountable and you're not going to have a great culture. I'm I'm sorry. It's just not going to work. Accountability is a key part of of a strong, sustainable culture. So those are three things I think are really important and they don't have anything to do with an out-of-bounds play or, you know, end-of-the-quarter play or a jump ball or whatever. It's But they're very important. Hey, this is Chris Oliver from the Basketball Podcast. It's that time of year again, and all eyes are now on pro basketball and the start of Major League Baseball season. BetOnline.ag has all the betting action. In the NBA, the conference races are heating up as teams prepare to make their run for the playoffs. And if baseball is your first love, BetOnline has you covered. If you love hockey, golf, MMA, and championship boxing, BetOnline has it all. Every sport, every game, every matchup. BetOnline has you covered for all the odds and real-time updates and is the place to be for all your sports betting needs. 
BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to place and check in on all your favorite sports bets all the time. Head to the website or use your mobile device and bring home the game with BetOnline. Coach, have you heard of Locker Room? Locker Room is live audio-only sports talk. It's free to download and to use. And you can talk to me and other fans and athletes and insiders in real time. I'm now going live on Locker Room on the Locker Room app every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, where I'm going to have real basketball conversations. It's perfect as well for watch parties, debates, post-game breakdowns, and reacting to breaking news, where you can share your own experiences on the app. All you need to do is to download the Locker Room app free in the iOS App Store, create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the league or group that you want to be a part of. You can follow me on Twitter at B-Ball Immersion to be notified when my room goes live. We'll be going live on Locker Room Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Join me on Locker Room. Uh, so important, and I'm glad you shared those with us. And I want to come back to something you said, which you corrected yourself, the difference between using criticism and negative. And it just struck me throughout your whole talk so far, how intentional we the words we use are and that we get a choice of the words we use and how we frame them for our team. And that would be such a huge difference, right? Framing things as criticism or needs improvement versus negative, which gives them a completely different connotation of what you're talking about. Absolutely. And and Chris, that is a great point because you have a choice how you phrase everything you say. And you can you can come across uh, angry. You can come across compassionate. You can come across aggressive. Uh, you can come across positive. While you are critiquing something, you know, it, it, I have a choice when I say, "God, that's terrible. You suck," or "That's you know that that's so negative." And so, um, the, if I start my uh, approach that way, then I immediately shut down. Everybody will, you know. I like to start with, hey, that I really like what you're trying to do there, or I think that's a good idea. Let me show you something that'll make you better. If you did this, I think it would be even better. You know, I know you can do that better. You know, so encouraging a positive while I'm sharing a, a, a criticism, you're shuffling your feet. You know what's going to happen if you shuffle your feet in the game? That'll be a turnover. I don't want you to have a turnover in the game. Come on, let's fix that. You know, so how you phrase it, how you frame it is extremely important. And so when you're giving feedback, when you're when you're trying to help someone, uh, when you're trying to help a player, a staff member, you know, how you approach them will determine whether they listen or not or whether they're open. Uh, And now if they trust you again, this is really important. Not only how you say it, but is it coming from someone who is talking the talk and walking the walk because everybody, players, coaches, everybody, they want a connection and they want a relationship with who they're working with and they want to be able to trust you. And I trust you because you follow through. And so you also make me better. You, you coach me, you teach me, you care about me. And so that, that how you frame it, you're exactly right makes a huge difference. Two coaches can say the same thing and 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 that player listens to one and blocks out the other. I, I, this is great. And I'd love to dig a little deeper into your process of helping coaches if we could and use me as a case study, for example. Uh, as a coach, I had a hard time 
putting the competitive away and getting to the teaching, even though I knew I was better as a teacher than as a competitor. And that I imagine a lot of coaches have that problem with balancing their intensity with their intention to teach. Can you talk a little bit about how you would work with someone like me on that process? Well, let me, I need a little bit more information. Were, were you a highly competitive student athlete? And that just doesn't go away. No. <laughs> and I was around really competitive mentors, like during an era where they could do stuff where, you know what, as you progressed in coaching, you couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's no, uh-uh. that's too long. You're practicing too long. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's in your DNA. That's in your DA to be DNA. So I was the same way. I was so highly competitive that I was more competitive than the players. You know, I couldn't understand why they weren't running through the wall. Well, that's not acceptable anymore. We don't run through walls, you know. <laughs> so you, so th- th- you have to work at that. Um, you have to work at anger management. You have to work at how you frame things. You have to work at at, at getting your highly competitive nature under control. You know, don't let it control you. You control it. You know, so so yeah, it's a it's a piece that you have to work at. Um, and I think this is an interesting thought. Sometimes you find some of our great coaches were not great players. They were not, you know, wild, crazy, competitive. You know, they 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 were a sub or they came off the bench and they have a different type of approach uh, because they weren't a wild, crazy, competitive, you know, nut on the court. So you really have to work at something you think is adversely affecting your ability to be the best coach you can be. And sometimes it's toning down your competitive. You don't want to give it. Oh, no, you want that. And you want to send that message. And you want to instill it every day with your energy and your effort, your attention to detail. But it can't be out of whack. You know, nothing. Balance. Balance is the key. Balance is the key in everything, in your personal life, in your professional life. In your offensive system, we've got to have three-point shooting. We've got drives to the rim. We've got to post up. We've got to have balance. And so that's the same way with your approach being highly competitive. Address it. I know it. I'm going to have to work on that. I'm going to have to be aware of that. And ask for help. Ask somebody, how am I doing? How am I doing? And they may say, not too good. You need new I, Yeah. And I wanted to jump on that. And, and really for me, I mean, I, I did change it over time for sure. So, and I was getting your perspective maybe on, how would you be, help a coach become aware of it? And I'm guessing from your conversation here that it's just as simple as making sure they understand they're doing it and becoming aware of it. And then, as you said, and I've seen this in notes of yours before, ask people for help. That's really hard for coaches, isn't it? Huge. And, le- and let me tell you something. Do, do not assume that a coach is aware of areas that are weaknesses. Do not assume that. That is not That is not fair it's not true um and so i think the the great coaches the consistently great coaches in all sports have mentors they have a board i call it to call it the board of directors the people that they turn to and say hey how am i doing or look let me tell you what's happened what do you think help me asking for help is a huge strength and i have so much respect for a coach that calls me and said look i'm struggling with so and so and so and so can you look at some film and tell me what you think? I'd be happy to. So instead of it being a weakness, oh, I don't know everything. Oh, I, you know, it's a streak. I need some help. Show me, help me here. And so I encourage all coaches at all level 
have a, a couple of people that you trust um, that, that want only the best for you and that you're constantly bouncing ideas off of them. I expect the coaches that I work for to admit to me, hey, I don't know why that didn't work. Help me. Look at this. What can we do better? How can I be better? How can I improve here? And so asking for help, golly, Bill, is so important. And then that person can look at you. I had one coach that I knew had some anger management issues. And I said, look, you've got you to tone it down. You know, you just, you're, you're, you're out of control. What? You know, what? And I'm like, hey, trust me, you'll be a better coach if you take it down a tone. You, you'll know more what's going on. Don't waste your energy over there on the referee. Focus your energy on the next play you're going to run or when you're going to call a timeout or a substitution. So um, asking for help, having those people. If you don't have a board of directors, a, a, a group of mentors that help you, you better get one. Great advice on the board of directors. That's just tremendous and a great way of framing it. And uh, it's so interesting just getting into this process that you work with people and how you would help them. And I uh, thank you for sharing that as well. Coach, going on uh, a little bit into, uh, we wanted to come back to staff a little bit. Two things that you've mentioned, and I want to get more of your thoughts on are delegating practice and bench responsibilities and how you go about that process of dividing those things up. Do you want the experts in the expert position or do you want to help people rotate and evolve in their different roles? Let's start with that from a staff perspective. I think that's a a great, a great question, Chris. uh, because your staff so influences um, your success and your practices and your system and everything. So when you're first creating your staff as a head coach, when you're hiring your three or two, I'm some of you in high school, you only have one assistant. You need to make sure you bring the right pieces to the fit in the puzzle. You know what I'm saying? You can't just go hire two of your friends because y'all have been friends and drinking buddies forever and we love each other and we go on vacation together and boy, we're going to have fun. Nah, that's not going to work. You have to look at your strengths. You know what they are. You're clear about what your strengths are. And then you're clear about what your weaknesses are. And so if you know you're weak in special situations or you've never really been very good at attacking zone defenses, then you are looking for an assistant that fills that void. And so that you're careful about what they bring to the table. And so when you're interviewing these assistants, you're saying, okay, tell me what you bring to the table. Tell me what you do well. Tell me how you can make me better and my team better. And so you're hunting, you're literally hunting for pieces that make your program better. If you make the mistake of hiring something that you don't need, that may not work out too well. Because now, once again, everybody on your staff is a defensive coach. Not a clue about offense, but they're good at defense. You're going to have some problems. So you, you have it's, 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 it's a diversity. I, I love the example, you know, a bowl of fruit. You know, do you want all apples or do you want an apple, a peach, a pear, a banana, and a few nuts? So now you've got a lot of different ideas. You've got different areas that you're strong in. And so that's really important with your staff. Once you've built your staff and you know every, we've got everything covered and you've delegated responsibilities, if I've got a great post coach that really develops post players, I'm going to put them in charge of my pups. There's not any doubt about that. 
But there may be some ways in practice that my post coach also works uh, at a station with my perimeter players posting up. So now there's some interaction. They're not, I'm not limiting them there. And I'm also open as a coach when a coach comes to me and says, Coach, I really want to get some more offensive or some more special situation. Okay, let's figure out how we can do that. Uh, everybody's going to scout. Everybody's going to uh, recruit. Um, and so we're, I'm going to try to grow my coaches, you know what I'm saying, in, in any area that they want to. Um, so I, I think that's part of your responsibility. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the thing that uh, you, you're talking about giving ownership to your assistants. And the part that I want to dive into a little bit is how do you then coach them? Because that's also, as you said, part of your responsibility to help them develop. So what is it a different process than working with players or do you frame it the same way in terms of developing your staff after, say, they did a drill? Well, I think the word you used, ownership, it's really powerful. Um, I, I like the word ownership and I like the word empower. And so I have to um, give ownership to an assistant um, in a particular area and, and it has to be theirs. You know, they have to feel like, uh, you know, they're not renting that, they're, they own it. And so I have to empower them, you know, and, but at the same time, I have to be aware of their strengths, their experience. You know, I may give ownership to someone that needs, you know, some help and support and, you know, some, some, some tutoring as we go along. But I do meet with that assistant about that area and say, tell me, show me what you're going to do. Show me your teaching progression. Show me your, your lesson plans. Let, let's make sure we're on the same page. You know, um, unless it's somebody that I've worked with for many years and we, you know, we've already got it. We're rolling. We just pull out the practices that we used last year and tweak them a little bit because they all work. We won. Why, why mess with a 30 win season? You know, we know what we need to do. Uh, I might give them a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more. Uh, I'm, I can go down on the other end and not worry about it. But I have to help them grow, help them teach. Um, and if I notice um, um, an area that they're falling short in, maybe they are talking too much in their drills and wasting time instead of um, the, the drill working. Or maybe they're trying to use too many new drills. That's a real problem for assistants sometimes. I think they think every day we need a new drill. And, and so every day we're wasting time teaching the drill instead of using the old drills. And this is really important. Use the old drills and tweak them. Use the old drills that the players already know and put a twist to them. And now you've saved time. You know, the players do it, can get it just like that. And you've worked on another piece. Uh, that needed work on. And I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big in that, the word time, you know, we could talk about time and how valuable that is in a whole nother podcast. Um, but, but that, but ownership, I, I don't, I'm not going to micromanage. I'm not going to micromanage them. I'm giving them ownership, you know, but I want to see what you're doing. I want to see your, okay, this is week one. This is what I'm doing in my individual position work. This is what I, yeah, let's do, you know, I want to see it. This is great coach and old drills and tweak them. That's, that's very dear to my heart. Like it's, it's, it's really a simple process, right? You create a situation and then you continue to load it with challenge in different ways, use constraints or however you want to phrase it. And you can challenge players with the same drill in so many different ways. 
And the other part that I love that you connected to, and I want you to get deeper into this, maximizing time on task. The number one way to increase learning time is to de- decrease teaching and management time, right? So for that's- you saying that, that's, that's absolutely every part of what you're talking about. Simplify your drills so that you can teach or so your players can be more active learning by doing. And, and that whole area of drills, because when you say, okay, how do we get better in practice and how does that carry over to a game? It's actually what you do with your practice time and maximizing if that drill, you know, and, and this is really important. And a lot of coaches and I watch practices and I've watched a lot of practice, they do a drill for five minutes and they only worked on one thing. And I'm like, oh, what a waste of time. How, what a tragedy. You know, every drill you do, I don't care what it is, at least three things are worked on. And I call it multiple drills. Now, in that five minutes, I may have improved passing, ball handling, and shooting. Whatever it is that I need work on, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the drill as heavy with skill as I can. And then I'm going to repeat it. And maybe the next time, it's like I said, it's tweaked. We get repetition, repetition, repetition. But I am sucking, squeezing every ounce of growth and skill improvement out of that five minutes. I can't, I'm not wasting a second. If I waste a second, and that's a big thing I have with assistant coaches that I get, well, you wasted two minutes. And they're like, well, what's two minutes? I'm like, it's a, it's, oh, it's so valuable. Because as the season goes along, we shorten practice. We can't go two, three hours. Now, and as you shorten everything, you have to maximize what you're able to suck and squeeze out of that drill. And that's why your preparation, what you're doing in the drill, how you're doing it, make sure you're doing it correctly, but make sure it's multiple. Make sure you're getting all you can get out of that drill. And is it a teaching drill, which is different from a competitive drill? You know, you, we know in teaching, we're reviewing, we're fixing, we've had slippage. We're t- and then now in a competitive drill, it's all out. Here we go, full speed. You know, so in understanding the difference, if you're doing a competitive drill and we haven't fixed the slippage, then all we're doing is reinforcing bad habits. Um, so that's. It's awesome, coach. Uh, so I want to piggyback on your multiple drills, which which I call mixing and uh, uh, Someone I know you value quite a bit, Doug Levoff, refers to as interleaving. And it's this concept of the fact that the athlete has to constantly be challenged in retrieval practice. So they've learned something and now you're mixing it with other things. So it's not just this one thing I have to focus on. It challenges them to retrieve it, which leads to retention. Can you give coaches an example, if you don't mind, of a multiple drill? Well, you know, I, I'm thinking of a drill, let's just say driving right down the middle um, or, or having a, a high screen, high on-ball screen, a middle screen roll, and I've got a, a player with the ball and a defender, and I've got the screener with the defender. And so we've, we've repped uh, several times, you know, how to use the screen, you know, how to take my man into the screen. Um, and, and so... Um, you know, we've, we've, we've done repetition. So, you know, I'm reading the defense, I'm, I'm, I'm setting screens, I'm using the screen, 
I'm reacting to what the defense did. And so we drill it in a repetitive way. And then I go all the way to the rim and score. So I score my defense. But we've taught how to do it. And then what I'm going to add to it, and this is a good, really part of what we're talking about, I'm going to add decision making to that drill because it's not rote. Okay. When we taught it, you knew exactly what was going to happen. You knew exactly what the defense was going to do. You know what you were going to do. Now you don't know what that defender is going to do. Is that defender going to jump out and trap you? Is that defender going to sag back? So what I've added to the, to the, uh, to the drill, same drill, uh, but now I've added the challenge of you making decisions. And so it's a multiple drill with multiple skills, offense, defense skills, but I've also added some decision-making. And this is really important because when, when, when coaches say, well, gosh, we're just, our decision-making is terrible. You know, we turn the ball, ball. I said, well, it's probably because of what you're doing in practice. If, if your players know exactly what's going to happen in every drill, they never have to make a decision. There's no surprise. There's no, no, no adjustments. Then how can they grow? How can their decision-making grow? And so I think that's really, really important. The teaching part, the use of time in your drill, um, the multiple drill, and then, of course, making it a decision-making drill. I'm so glad you talked about the decision-making component because uh, uh, that's huge. And uh, the the part that obviously makes it even easier to have decisions is playing offense versus defense, right? Like it's Absolutely. the simplest way to make sure we have decisions. And all of these drills that you talked about that are like on air and void of decision-making, ultimately that's just a perfection drill. And as we know, perfect is not learning. We don't get better. We don't get better. Um, I was working with a team um, that that was really good in the two-man game unless somebody iced them. And when somebody iced them, they just fell apart because they they didn't know how to deal with icing. And so that decision-making moment hadn't been put into uh, a drill. And so if somebody iced them, you know what they did? They just didn't run the (laughs) two-man game. That was the answer because we we don't know how to handle it. And it's like, ooh, okay, well – you're going to see icing, and if you love the two-man game, you better come up with it and drill it. You know, just drill it. And then I realized some coaches are like, well, I don't, know, I don't know what to do. Well, then that's where you have to invest time. Ask for help. There's a million clinics of how to, how to attack downing or icing or whatever. Watch an NBA game. They do it every night. So you need to grow. And so when you're through learning, you're through. And so if you don't know this piece of the game, then you go find out, you go learn, you get better. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. And uh, I'm curious then, having watched a lot of the NCAA women's games this year and tournament, especially, uh, are, are you thinking that in the future, more icing and more drop coverages are coming into the women's game? You know, it's certainly WNBA, NBA, that's the, the norm now. Absolutely. I, I think what we're seeing uh, with our women's uh, college games, all levels, not just D1, is we're looking at the WNBA, we're looking at the NBA, we're seeing how they play, we're seeing the advancements that they're making offensively. I mean, we see pro offenses, we're, you know, uh, when the Golden State Warriors started using big pieces of the Princeton offense, everybody starts using it. Uh, Tar Vanderveer at Stanford went over and met with the uh, with the Warriors and, and picked up a lot of her offensive system from them. And so, yeah, we're copying what we see. 
and, and the little girls are copying the big girls and the little boys are copying the big boys. And so defensively, uh, icing and downing is part of the college game. And, and I think I'm starting to see it in, in high school. And, and so if you run a side two man and, and this team always ices on the side, you need to know um, how to attack that. And there's simple ways to attack it, but you have to rep it, rep it. You know, and then the next thing you know, you go over there and instead of icing, they trapped you. Now it's a decision-making situation. So mix it up, get better, use that drill. Like I say, I want to suck everything, squeeze everything out of that drill you can. But yeah, you better be prepared for icing. And I think it's a great, I mean, I, if I was coaching today, I'd ice you everywhere. I'd ice you in the middle. And the, and the, and the NBA does ice you in the middle. You get over, listen a little bit over this way, they're not letting you. Don't I'm not gonna let you use the screen. You're so good at it. I'm just you're not not happening. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch as this stuff trickles down. And uh, mm-hmm. the one thing that I think will always be a holdover in the women's game, which is enjoyable to watch, is post play. Post play can still dominate in the women's game, and there were so many creative ways that coaches did a great job of getting the ball into the low post, and then that seal to score off of a high-low or a low-post seal, that is still very relevant in the women's game, isn't it? Absolutely. I think predominantly in the women's game, and I'm still seeing it in men's college too, is the four out with a one dominant low-post player. And that low-post now is coming up to the pinch-post area. We're seeing them maneuver some down there and then get back down there or come out and set a two-man game and then get back down there. Um, so, yes, it is still a part of our game, and we're seeing little big screens to get them open. And we're even seeing big wings go down and post up uh, a smaller wing. I thought Stanford there pulled away at the end of the championship game when they sent the uh, Jones kid down to post up. You know, she's a big wing, and she scored a couple times in a row. Game's over. And, and so the low post post up uh, around the basket is still – a very effective way, um, uh, you, you know, in, 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 in both men's and women's college and still in the, in the WNBA. Now we're seeing it less in the, um, in the NBA. And I'm kind of surprised that we don't see it a little bit more because they have the defensive three second rule, you know, in the pros. So you can't just camp down in there, but for whatever reason, the fives want to float around the three-point line and just shoot threes and be guards. I don't know. It's interesting. Well, it's analytics, I think. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's why I kind of asked that. And I, I always reference the the WNBA and, the, and, and women's college. And as you said, some men's college teams are still doing it. When high school coaches ask me, well, should I be going to this modern spacing? And I'm like, well, yes, but if you have a dominant matchup inside, you got to do that because that's still such a powerful points per possession for so many teams at a lot of lower and, levels. And don't pull your big man and put them out there if they can't hit threes because then <laughs> nobody's going to guard them out there. And yeah. so now Ender's just standing in the paint. Uh, people want to play five out or all like I'm like, well, can all five of your people shoot the three? You know, can all five of you, you know, have a face up game because that looks good on paper, but. If 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 her or his range is three feet, I don't know what they're doing out there. Maybe they're screening. You know, I, I don't know. So it, it depends on your personnel, your talent. Is individual player skills the most, I guess, the, the biggest difference in your 40 plus years of coaching? 
how players are now so much more skilled individually. Is that probably the biggest change that you've seen? Um, that and, and, and their higher basketball IQs. Mm. Which, uh, they, which I define as skill, by the way, just to, uh, like skill yeah. is biomechanical. Okay. And as you said, decision-making, but yes, okay. thanks yeah. for referencing that. Passing ball handling, yes. shooting, uh, just the whole package, the whole package of individual skills. And then with an enormous uh, knowledge of the game. You know, I, I like to use the term high basketball IQ because when when a coach is saying, you know, we're recruiting so-and-so, no, I'll, first, how, how is their basketball IQ? You know, do they know the game? Are you going to have to spend an enormous amount of time? Can they remember the plays? Uh, yeah, so I've seen huge growth. And I think for the, for the guys, you, you know, they've been playing this game a long time. They've been getting coaching a long time, AAU, elementary. But now I'm seeing the women. The women are playing in that bitty league, you know, when they're three, four, and five years old. And we're seeing the benefit of that. We're seeing the girls now in high school and the women now in college that have been playing forever. You, you, you know, and they've had great coaching thanks to Title IX. You, you, you know, the women have received a lot better coaching. Uh, so they've had the opportunity to get better. You've got personal trainers, you've got personal coaches, um, you've got all of the stuff that you can watch. Um, you know, I can go find five little six minute, um, coaching drills, uh, in the USA basketball site and send them to a player. I said, do these every day and you'll get better. And they will. Uh, so there's just so many ways to get better. Uh, and so that's why we're better. That's why everybody's better. And yeah, if you're it's a not, lot of fun. You, it sticks out. You know, you can't, um, you know, it's just so tough uh, at the highest levels because they're all so good. Hey, this is Chris Oliver from the Basketball Podcast. It's that time of year again, and all eyes are now on pro basketball and the start of Major League Baseball season. BetOnline.ag has all the betting action. In the NBA, the conference races are heating up as teams prepare to make their run for the playoffs. And if baseball is your first love, BetOnline has you covered. If you love hockey, golf, MMA, and championship boxing, BetOnline has it all. Every sport, every game, every matchup. BetOnline has you covered for all the odds and real-time updates and is the place to be for all your sports betting needs. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to place and check in on all your favorite sports bets all the time. Head to the website or use your mobile device and bring home the game with Bet Online. Coach, thanks for supporting the podcast. I'm so excited to share this with you. Your outdoor experiences could be better, clearly better. Canon sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity. Using Japanese optics, Canon lenses are clearer, lighter, and stronger than other lenses, and nearly impossible to scratch. With frames handcrafted in Italy, Canon sunglasses elevate your experience outside with a degree of clarity beyond your wildest imagination. Coach, I have a pair and I love these and I want to share this exclusive code with you. CanonCast15 at Canon.com to receive 15% off your first pair. That's CanonCast15, K-A-E-N-O-N-C-A-S-T-15, Canon Clearly Better. So good. And it's fun to watch and it's fun to be around players that are skilled as well. And I know it's more enjoyable for players when you're skilled. So it all makes sense. Coach, while we have your ex, sorry, go ahead. Those plays work better too when you're skilled. (laughs) 
Well, and that, that, great. Now, now we got a segue, coach. So I wanted to, because you shared a special situations checklist with me, and, and I don't want to go through the whole checklist necessarily, but I do want to get into some of the some of the topics that you raised, which I thought were excellent. And the first one I just want to get into is make sure you time all your plays. Can you talk about that process of timing plays? And I think you're talking, you're referencing specifically special situations. Absolutely. And, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of my areas. If somebody said, what area do you really love? Well, there are a lot of areas I love, but I, there's, I've always been attracted and kind of addicted to special situations. And I love to film clips, NBA, WNBA, college of last minute situations where, you know, they either won or they didn't win or, you know, fouls to give, all that type of stuff. So I love special situations. Uh, and so one of the things that I think is really important is whatever special situation you're doing at the end of a quarter or at the end of a half or the end of the game, uh, or even, you, you know, in uh, an out-of-bounds play, awareness of the clock, the, t the time, the amount of time and the awareness of the clock, because you want to make sure you have enough time to run the actions that you practice. You know, you, you don't want to run this action and you had to use a, 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 a different option because the first action was denied um, and, and you ran out of time. So I like timing anything that's related to uh, to the clock like that, you know, um, and knowing, OK, if it's the end of the quarter or the end of the half and there's 15 seconds on the clock and I want the last shot or no shot, when do I start the action? You know, and why do I start it there? And that's a real fun teaching thing uh, with your players. And, and I'm big on uh, blending special situations throughout the practice. You know, um, traditionally, coaches have a problem with putting special situations at the end of practice and it gets cut. And so they never work on special situations enough. So, OK, don't do that. Just blend them throughout the practice every day. Every day, some type of a special situation, and it doesn't have to be 10 minutes. It can be 14 seconds, blue and white, we're tied, one foul to give, one timeout for both teams, let's go. And then I we, love that, yeah. We go get a drink of water, and then later on, we, after shell drill, we do something else. Again, that comes back to what you talked about with multiple drills. That's mixing. That's causing them to stimulate their retrieval practice to remember the play or to, again, refocus and execute a play at random times. So I love that simulation of blending it into practice. Well, and, and the other way to, to, to blend in some special situations is play a four-minute mini game. You know, you don't have to play 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Okay, you're going to play four minutes. It's the last four minutes of the game. And so you know that last minute becomes special situations. So you've gotten the – or maybe it's a five-minute scrimmage, but you, you've gotten some of your scrimmage area, you know, live scrimmage. It's real. You're keeping score, but down the stretch now, you know, it's a two-point ball game. And so now we're, now we're playing like a real game. And so I've got an assistant coach coaching one team. I've got an assistant coach coaching the other team. They're getting some experience coaching and making decisions. They've got two timeouts. They've got two fouls to give. They're talking with their players about how to take advantage of that. So we're practicing what is going to happen in a game. I can watch a game. You can too. And you know that team hasn't practiced special situations at the end of the game. It, it's just a cluster. It's, it's like, what did they do? And then you think that they've, they've not practiced it. You can just tell. And you can tell the ones that have. 
So uh, going a little deeper with special situations, you referenced when do you like to shoot the last shot as you're talking about the timing of the plays. So I want to get your perspective on that. And then building into two-for-ones, and what is your philosophy now in two-for-ones? Well, let's, let, let's talk about the last shot because we play quarters. High schools play quarters. Of course. Pros play and you, quarters. And you have shot clocks. <laughs> and we have shot clocks. And, yeah. and so the only people that are behind the boat here are men's college basketball because they need to go to quarters. I don't know what they're doing, but it just don't go down that path. But anyway, No, let's so- not go down that, too. And the advance the ball in the last two minutes, FIBO. You guys do the one minute, but – the game would be so much better doing that, right? Gosh, it's wonderful. And I love that part of the game. And, I, and the players love it. The fans love Who doesn't love it? You know? So, anyway, uh, back to uh, the end of the quarter. You, you know, I'm of yep. the philosophy that I want to end the quarter taking the last shot if I have possession of the ball. And so I have to practice that. I don't want you to have the last shot and you hit a big three and now the momentum swung over your way. Uh, so I'm I'm saying last shot or no shot. I'm getting that last shot in, at, at the end of the first quarter, the end of the half. Of course, the end of the game is different because there's no more time. Uh, but 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 so we, we practice it. What is our go-to play that has a couple of options? You know, if they they could trap her, you know, so we know we do this if they trap her. But we have our go-to play, and so we're not going to start it. And this is how I know what coaches a team's well coached. When did they start that play? And so if they started it too soon and they took the shot with 10 seconds and now the other team's got the rebound and they got plenty of time to fly down the floor and score. So so I, I'm, I'm more down around six, five. You, you know, it's not going to be a multiple option. Everybody's not going to touch the ball because that's a chance for a turnover or to foul somebody that can't shoot a free throw. Uh, and then the shot goes up. Um, and I like a shot that's attacking the rim or attacking for a kick, something like that. So I have a, a, some variety. Um, and, and then there's a rebound. And I, maybe with a second left, I've still got a chance to put a, put a rebound back up. Um, so that, that's kind of my philosophy with the, um, with the end of the quarter. Now, here's a really important point, Chris. A lot of teams spend great amounts of time on their offensive in-game situations. I was going to ask you exactly that. So, yeah. And they spend time on defense. Yeah. Okay. So, but now in the pros, we did. That was really important. And so, let's say that you have the ball and you're holding it for your end of the quarter shot. What is our defensive plan? While they're holding the ball and getting ready and letting the clock run down, are we just standing there looking at them and hoping it doesn't go in? Have we made an adjustment or do we already know? Okay, guys, let me tell you something. When this starts, we're sliding into a two-three zone. We're, she is not getting into our paint because we know that's what she wants to do. Or we are trapping when they, if they're using an on-ball screen. They always use an on-ball screen. So we're—I don't care what happens—we're trapping her, make her be a passer. You know, so we have we have a defensive plan. We're switching everything. It, it, we might have gone to our green defense, uh, low shot clock in in quarter. We may go green, which means switch everything. So we have practiced um, in-game situations or special situations on the defensive end because sometimes we forget to do that. Um, Inline, sideline, out-of-bounds plays, we spend a lot of time on the offensive execution. Well, what's your defense? What, what are, what's your inline defensive system? What's your sideline defensive system? 
And have you practiced it? Um, so I would encourage coaches to make sure uh, you don't want to get to a situation where the game's on the line and, 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 and you know, you've got to defend at the end of the game. And it's going to come down to can you defend the low post at the end of the game? You know, are you fronting them? Are you behind? Are you, what are you doing? So make sure you practice uh, both of those. Um, before, was- before you get to two, two for ones, I want to come back. Before you get to two, on, two for ones, because I'm glad you hit on this defensive piece. The other part that I want to get your thoughts on, which I think coaches don't give enough attention to, is after you shoot the last shot, what is your defensive transition? Because I find that that's often a time where your defensive transition, for whatever reason, falls apart. And I'm guessing it's a little bit different because there's more players because they're going to push as fast as they can. There's more players behind the ball. So your defense actually has an advantage and you should be probably more aggressive trying to stop the ball with bluffs or fake double teams, right? Yeah, and and that's a really good point um, because if you take that shot too early, if you take that shot too early, you're opening yourself up to uh, transition and them getting something that you did not want to have happen. And so I think it's really important at the end game like that, that on your offensive, that, that they're clear and you practice it. Who is your get back? You know what I'm saying? We, we can't fall apart and nobody got, you know, as the shots going up and the ones that are rebounding, we already know so-and-so is, is moving back because we're not letting that happen. We're not letting them send a flyer, a snowbird, and well, it's not happening. And so you, that's a great attention to detail. And, and, and to be honest, I'm glad you brought that up because I won a game. Well, not me. We uh, in the playoffs because on a free throw, we opted not to move it. And they missed the free throw. And we we sent a, we sent a runner and, and they didn't get back. And, and we got a layup just this that we should have never gotten. You know what I'm saying? J- just because they weren't prepared for that happening that quick. Um, I, I, just piggybacking on that. I've, I've seen coaches, especially in Europe, talk about this, that any last second shot, that's a three, they immediately send a flyer. They, they don't defensive rebound just for that potential advantage, right? If you get absolutely. that board, you can throw it deep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, no, no doubt about it. And, and no, it's not accidental. It's playing. This is part of their system. This is part of their defensive um, special situation system. And, and, so, and I, while we're on this, you know, let's remember after, after a free throw, it is a special situation. You know, what are you doing after the free throw? You either hit or miss the free throw. You know, what's happening defensively, what's happening offensive. So you, that's a special situation. Is that when you're pressing, you know, is what is your defensive special situation plan after a made or missed free throw? And then, um, uh, after a timeout, that's the other big um, um, special situation I think that's overlooked sometimes. Okay, you, you're in a huddle, and so you're coming out. So you have an opportunity to call a play, to say, hey, this is what we're going to do in offense. But you also have an opportunity to change your defenses. So you, this is a defensive uh, special situation. You've been playing uh, man-to-man, and you've been hard-hedging. And so maybe you stick with your man to man, but y'all, let's 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 do one black. Let's whatever on ball they run, we're trapping. Just one, just one possession. Hey, leads to a turnover. They're not expecting that. Or maybe you went zone one possession. 
But so don't underestimate the value of defensive special situations and how that might win you a ball game. Uh, I know you're spending all your time on your offensive special situations, but those defensive special situations um, are tremendously valuable. Well, and and to to your point earlier about offense versus defense, if you're doing that, you're working on both at the same time, and you can do this two-way coaching process as well. It becomes a mini game. Back to mile. I love the t- yep, love it. Free throw. There's 48 seconds left. Blue shooting a free throw. They're down two, you know, and so now we play it out with that whole uh, offense, defense, special situation. And the real key here now um, is, is it's important that you're aware of how many timeouts does the team have? How many fouls do we have to give? And this is an area I can always tell where a team has worked on how do I use my fouls? I've got two fouls to give and I give up a three. And and I could have, you know, so they don't know how to take a foul. They don't know how to use the two fouls. Um, they don't know when to use the timeout. So th- that becomes part of that offense, defensive, special situations. Uh, it could be coming out of a timeout. Hey, we're tied. White team's got a sideline out of bounds place. Well, you don't know what defense, you know, so but you're, it it's becomes part of your part of your practice and it's mini games and it's fun and everybody gets better. I'm just guessing you do this, but I wanted to reference this for coaches because the part about the mini games that, that I think is just as valuable is not giving the players the answer is, is letting them try and figure it out on their own and then making it a discussion or a conversation or a redo or do over afterwards, instead of us preaching and telling them in advance. Because that, again, stimulates them in thinking deeper. Absolutely. You're exactly right. And so let's remember, because this is real and this is live, if, you're, if you have possession of the ball, you're talking about the play you're running, you don't know what the other team's doing down on the other end. You don't know if they're going to trap you, they're going to go zone. You know, so, so this is all going to be about decision-making. And, and so it's really, it's really beneficial. It's beneficial for the coaches. It's beneficial for the players. It's also an interesting, depending on your team, and I've done this with pro teams. Now, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it depends on an experienced college team. I may ask my players in that huddle down there on the defensive end, what do you want to do? How do you want to guard the two-man game? Because, you know, everybody's going to run some kind of a two-man game. Um, at the end, I, I, they may say, Coach, let's use – if the schemes are colors, we think that's, let's do that. You know, I, I'm open, and I'm really open in the pros. If, if my pros that have 15, 20 years of experience say, Coach, we got to get out of that scheme. It ain't working. We need to go to this. Okay, let's go. Uh, so letting the players have some input, I think it's a great idea. I even think uh, with the college kids, it's okay. Don't worry about the length of the timeout. Let's discuss this situation. What do y'all, what, what y'all want to do? What do y'all think is a good idea, offensively or defensively, and get some discussion, you know, um, and get them get them thinking and talking uh, is a great is a great opportunity to teach. It's a great opportunity to see your leaders and kind of see you know who's open to saying something. But uh, yeah, don't miss an opportunity to 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 teach and let your kids take some ownership of that play. That's great. I, I know we've teased this a little bit, so we got to get to it, Coach. The two for one strategy. What's your, what's your philosophy on the two for one? <laughs> well, I love the two for one. Uh, um, I, I think it's a it's a great special situation 
The only problem that I have with it is my my time. Do I have enough time in my practices to invest in that particular situation? Because it doesn't happen very often. And so what I've done with my special situations is I've ranked, okay, here's the things that happen the most, the next things that happen the most, the next things that happen the most, the next things. And so my time goes with one, two, three. And so right down here is is two for one. And so I may not have the time to invest in that because it's not going to happen very often. Uh, now, if I have a veteran team, you know, we may play a mini game, a two for one mini game, you know, because they're bored. You know, they know everything. You know, they're good. And so we can we can play with that. And, and we understand, OK, we've got to get a shot by this time. You know what I'm saying? We got we got. It's whatever, what a 30 second clock, you know, it's 46 seconds. You know, you can't, you can't fool around. However, we're not going to take a bad shot. Now, some people think, oh, it's two for one. I got to jack up a shot. No, 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 no. You have an action that gets you a quick, good shot, a quick, good shot. And guess what? If you're in bonus, attacking the rim is always a good you know, decision, but we're not going to take a quick shot. So we can do the two for one. It was bad shot. You know, it's got to be good. It's got to be high, you know, high percentage good shot. We drove in that we kicked it into our post pinned away. And here she came across, got a three, you know, that was a four second action that we practiced that we like, but she wasn't open. Well, she's not going to shoot it just because we're trying to get a two for one. So understanding what you're trying to do, yeah, because you're going to get the ball back. But that's really important. But if you don't, be careful. If you don't practice it, don't do it. So that's I want to get your perspective on that priority list a little bit uh, because that's so important. Look, they're all important, but some of them are more important based on the time you have, especially as you move down to high school and youth level where you might have less practice time, less walkthroughs, whatever it may be. So can you give us a little perspective on some of the things that are the most important and maybe some of them that would be a little lower priority? Well. How many out of bounds plays are there a game? And and chart them. You try. I think somebody told me that you can figure there's going to be sixteen. You know, it depends on the on the on the league you're in because some take it out on the side all the time. In in the in the pros, we take it out down underneath a lot. You know, like so. It just depends. I mean, college, women's college. So wherever there's a lot of action. So if there's going to be sixteen or an average between 14 and 16 in-line out-of-bounds plays a game, then you bet that's that's that tells you you spend you're gonna spend time there. There's gonna be three times you in the quarter. So that's not near as high as your out-of-bounds plays. So I've got out-of-bounds plays end and side as a priority. Special situations, offense and defense with out-of-bounds plays. Not any doubt about it. That's a priority. Um there's going to be timeouts. So ATOs, ATOs are right up there. There are not as many ATOs as there are uh, sobs and bobs, uh, but there's enough that we need to be prepared for those. Free throws, there's going to be free throws. I'm sorry. After free throws, offense and defense, that's, that's up there in my special situation. So those are probably the three that garner the most attention because they're both offense and they're both defense. Uh, and then probably on down there is is in the quarter. I mean, in game, 
you know, stay close. All right, all right tell my players, stay close. We're going to win. Just all we're going to do is stay close because we're prepared. And they believe that because we practice it. We practice it. Stay close. We're going to win. And when we're in a close game, when the pros, we're going to win. I said, I know. <laughs> you know, we're ready. You know, we know what we're going to do offense, know what we're do, do defense. So the end of the game there is right up there with my ATOs, AFTs, and Bobs and Sobs because there's going to be an end of the game. But sometimes you win, it's not even close. But you want to be prepared. Um, one of the areas that – that I think sometimes is a special situation that might get overlooked is when we were behind and we got to score quick. We're behind, we got to score quick. And so having a plan, okay, we're behind, we don't have a whole lot of time, we got to score quick. Uh, and so I think that's worth spending some time on, uh, but it's not up there with my other group. The other special situation that I think is important that gets overlooked uh, is. Um, star defense um explain because that's that not us, yeah. really huh explain that to us what's star defense well that's not really part of that's it's, it's out of the ordinary uh you, you've got a player offensively that's just killing you i, I mean but and it could be a low post or it could be a perimeter player and so you've got to do something to or, or that star player alone is going to beat you. And so we all know boxing one, triangling two. You know, what is your plan? Because I think you lose a little bit of trust from your players if you just keep letting that star score at will. Okay, of course, we can change the defender. All right, she's she's abused you. Let's try you. Well, she you didn't do any good. Let's try you. Nobody can guard this player one-on-one. And so thinking about, okay, I, we do have a plan to make her a passer. And what is it? A trap. Okay, we're going to trap her. We're going to make her give the ball. Well, where's the trap going to come from? We're going to trap the low post. Where's the trap going to come from? We're going to trap the perimeter player every time she touches it. Where's the trap going to come from? So I, I, I think it's valuable to have a plan uh, to disrupt um, the star player inside and outside. So I may need to know how to double the low post and I may need to know how to trap the perimeter player. I think that should be in your package as, as part of your special situation. Now you're not going to spend as much time on it as you would the other things, but let's say you're coming to that week. Okay. On Friday, we're playing, you know, and she's, yeah. And she's, ooh, wow. And so you review that and you're prepared for her because can she single-handedly beat you yes uh now if she can't if she can get 30 and you could you, you know there may be the problem i don't care if she gets 30 now if she gets 50 <laughs> we got a problem uh but but you're you're prepared for it and your players respect you and trust you hey we're, we're prepared we're ready in case this happens so we know who's tracking so that that star thing i think is another um uh, area that that sometimes gets overlooked. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, tremendous. And uh, coach, such great points throughout. Uh, why why are some teams better than other teams in special situations? In your opinion, they really value it. The the, the coach absolutely values knowing that if we are skilled and we're prepared in special situations, it's going to help us win a game. It's going to help us win games. Uh, it's a sign that we're well coached, that we're prepared. And, and so um, 
I think I think that's the teams, that, the coaches and the teams that value it. You can see it. You see it in, in, in how they execute. Um, and, and, and some coaches don't know, don't know what they want to do. So they just kind of push it aside. And so the, 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 the teams that are really good at it have invested time in it. They talked about it. They taught their in-game plays. They taught their in-game defenses. And so they've invested in it. They value in it. They blend it into their practice. It's part of their practice. It's part of their identity. We're good at special situations. Um, and then I think um, someone on every staff is a specialist in it. I, I think there's someone in that staff, and it could be the head coach. It could be one of the assistants has really decided that's my – I watch. Who's diagramming that play over there? It's not always the head coach. Who, who's talking about the defense? It's not always the head coach. So, so I think those things come into play uh, when the when the, the the best teams are the best at um, at special situations. Yeah, coach. As you're talking about star defense and some things like that, it it struck me how much I enjoyed watching the Kentucky women's team play this year and watching a unique player like Ryan Howard play. At, she's just special, and I'm wondering what advice you give to coaches who have that one really unique talent like that. And then I'm sure many others in your career that you've coached. Well, there's no doubt she's gifted. I mean, she's absolutely gifted, unbelievably beyond uh, her her age right now. I mean, like I've said before, she's a pro. I mean, she she's a professional player uh, right now with her with her physical gifts, with her knowledge of the game, with her skills. Um, and, and so, if you have the opportunity uh, to coach, you know some would say a once in a lifetime type player like that. Uh, you, if you're coaching the pros, it happens more than once, but sometimes in college it doesn't. Uh, you, you know, you, you have the challenge of, of understanding that she's going to draw an enormous amount of attention defensively. She's going to be um, all types of defenses, the triangle two, the box at one. She's going to be trapped. Um, she's going to switch defenses, you know, so you have to invest time in preparing her for all of the things that she will deal with that the rest of the players are not dealing with. And so you have to work with her there, prepare her for that so that there are no surprises. Know what you will do when she is trapped. And so that's so important because it not only affects her because she has to be a great passer. Who is she passing to? You don't want her passing to somebody that can't hit the broad side of a barn. She may be open. There's a reason she's open. So, you know, it's it, there's a plan. There's a plan to helping her handle all of the difficult challenges defensively that she's going to see. And then the other thing is being aware of having counters. You know what I'm saying? Because they are going to, your opponent is going to focus in on everything she does. They may follow her to the bathroom. They may follow her to the locker. They, they have zeroed in. They know her favorite plays. They know her favorite actions. And so they are going to try to take away her first action, her best action. And so it's so important if she has three favorite actions that each one of those has a counter. Okay, if I pass to the high post, I could cut. Over and set a screen on the wing. I could cut off the high post. Ooh, I could cut over there and set a brush screen. So you you don't know which action she's going to use. So then now what is she? She's harder to guard. 
she's harder to guard. Make her hard to guard. Make her not predictable. And then move her around. Move her around. She's inside. She's outside. If she stands over in the corner for an hour and a half, well, it ain't going to work. So make her hard to guard. Move her around. Make sure she's got counters to her key actions. All stars have a package. They have There's a package of plays that are for them. When you've got a player like Ryan Howard that can shoot the three, that can get to the rim, that can drive and kick, and can also post up. So she's extremely versatile. Use that versatility. Use it. Um, and, and, and I think the other thing is, um, and this is one thing I love about Ryan Howard, she's very unselfish. Do you know what I'm saying? She's happy to create for others. She's happy to find the open person. And so that makes, you know, that makes coaching her a lot easier. She's not trying to force the shot. She's not trying to create something that's not there. Uh, so that's a real plus because sometimes, you know, star players uh, are not that way. Totally. And uh, just great to have your perspective on that, especially the fact that you acknowledge and, and there's no reason not to because everybody knows that we acknowledge that she has or the star has unique circumstances. And it's OK to acknowledge that and coach your team towards those unique circumstances, because as we know, like, you know, you can be treated equally, but not everyone is equal of talent. Well, not everyone's going to get to take 20 shots, you, you totally. know. You, Right. That's it. This, basketball is not an equal opportunity endeavor. That's just, just not that way. You may get to touch it, but that doesn't mean you can shoot it. Such a great point. Coach, I mean, just so many amazing things. I mean, you've, you've had an incredible career, WNBA championship, and uh, so many amazing college and professional experiences. And I know it's ongoing. And uh, just a, a big thanks uh, from me and all the coaches for all the work you do in sharing the game. And and mentoring coaches. It's just tremendous to be able to talk to you. Well, thank you, Chris. And I hope you and I get back together again. I've loved every minute of this. We'll do that for sure. Thanks, coach. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.